0: Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, greetings. Welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today we have Dr. Carl Cordova from the Agronomy Department at the University of Nebraska. Carol, how are you today?
1: Hi, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing great. How about you?
0: Good. So, how long have you been at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln?
1: So, it's been now like uh, one year. I joined UNL on September 2nd, and it, it has been a great first year.
0: Excellent. Glad to hear that. So, kind of where are you from? What was your journey to get here?
1: Sure. So, I'm originally from Ecuador, and um, I did my bachelor's there in engineering, and then I moved to the U.S. to first do an internship in Iowa State University and uh, during this internship, I was really exploring what were my passions and definitely uh, my passions were like, you know, eh, into soil science and with that, you know, I really confirmed that I wanted to pursue grad school and I was lucky enough to um, find a program there and get on a scholarship as well. So I did my doctorate there in soil science with, my Castellano and Sotirs are Contuli, so I'm a hybrid of two labs. One it was like completely on biogeochemistry and the other group was into crop modeling, but I was part of the the soils aspect of you know designing a a farm decision tool that you know I- involved like several uh, models and but for the models to be perfect, you know, you need to have like really good data of soils. <laughs> so I was part of that team.
0: Sure. Soils data are hard to get, and you know it's, it's hard to get everything right with the soils, it seems to me. Um, yeah, the crop modeling aspect, part of that, I would totally understand. The biogeochemistry, probably a bit less so. Uh, so you have a kind of unique background. Um, so when you were a kid growing up, were you very interested in agricultural systems and soils, or is this something that you really kind of gravitated toward as you got older?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I'm actually, you know, since I was little, I was involved in two different soils projects. So that, you know, the passion for soil was transferred from my dad, that he's a civil engineer. And I was lucky enough that he was, you know, sometimes he was able to um take me with him and uh, to, you know, to visit some of his projects and and I start to learn more about, you know, because I was a very curious kid and I was always asking about everything, like, you know why the soils have different colors why the soil like texture is different from one point to another and then you know as i was growing up then my dad was able to um eh, also bring with bring eh, me with him to the lab and do some analysis so particularly you know like eh, civil engineers that are more interested in the physical properties of the soils and then you know in order to determine like if you know one one soil will really will hold together and will like you know support like a massive structure like a house or a building so you know i i started learning about those properties since i was little and 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 like you know teenager and then i i you know i also uh, was promoted in my dad's uh, work so from like you know helping in the lab and like also helping with some uh reports so but in his case he was really trying to a influence in a way that he really wanted me to become another civil engineer, of course, right? <laughs> but in my case, uh, I was also looking into like you know worms. I was looking other other aspects on the soil, right? So I saw like also that soils have different colors. So that brought brought you know different questions that my dad was not able to answer that much about the mineralogy of the soils that you know leading to like you know some soils that have more iron will be more orangey and so on and 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 then that you know the, the those other soil properties were the ones that were like taking me like a little bit away from civil engineering and putting me more into like environmental science and agriculture and then that's you know something that led me to do ag engineering and and study that and then later on like definitely devoted completely to soil science and study you know all these different properties and how they interact to each other and 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 help other ecosystems to thrive. So that's you know in 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 summary how you know everything was, you know, leading me to um to where I am right now.
0: Well, that's really cool. It's always really interesting to hear stories from other scientists as kind of how they got where they are, what really got them passionate about what they do. So, how many years did you actually get to work in this lab when you were uh, younger?
1: So, yeah. So, so since, you know, since, since I was like teenager, so all my, you know, my teens, I was in the lab doing some analysis, but not working directly. You know, I was not like there as, as an official assistant. So I was able to go there like a couple of times. So uh, it's, it's, it's also not, not allowed to have, you know, teenagers uh, getting like wages at that time. Oh, I I see. But, But
0: so I mean, it was a very useful unpaid internship. In other words, that's how we—that's how, how we would call it in the U.S.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, kind of like an unofficial intern.
0: <laughs> so, do you get to share this passion with students, or are you currently teaching any courses uh, here at UNL?
1: Yes, yes, yes. I'm I'm teaching uh, agriculture uh, every spring semester, and and now during the fall semesters, I'm I'm teaching soil health and environment. So i'm super happy that this class has a lab portion so i'm able to like also transfer my passion to them right so so they can like you know have these lots of hands on experience not not only in the in the lab but also i'm taking them to the field because you know you could do different soil health assessments in situ and with like very uh, basic tools and and sometimes are more observational that you know you definitely need to like unveil those mysteries or unveil different concepts that you know are probably sometimes overlooked
0: it's like what kind of places are you taking field trips to for a soil analysis
1: great question so I'm taking I'm taking the students to do like you know in situ soil health assessments in uh crop lands native lands and then also some agroforest uh, sites. So they can have, you know, look into different aspects that sometimes are the same, but some other times we're looking into different parameters in these, depending on the ecosystem.
0: But so by native land, is that native grasses?
1: Yeah, in this case here in Nebraska, yes, we are like, you know, I mean, in this semester, we are not visiting, oh wait, we are do visiting the Nine Mile Prairie, uh, which has some native grasses, so that's you know not not far from, from our campus, but also is, you know, uh we know that before Nebraska was mainly grassland, right? Like part of the Great Plains. So so it, it it like it it allows them to like some students that haven't been there, like you know, have the opportunity to look into um different soil types, different um uh, a, a covers and different dynamics that are occurring in these uh, native grass. Sure. Native grassland.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of leading to my next question. How would you, maybe even, even in a broad sense, how would you define soil health?
1: Yeah, great question. So for me, soil health, you know, is the overall well-being and quality of a soil ecosystem, right? So when, when I'm talking about like the well-being or the wellness, it's, it's similar as when we're going to a doctor's appointment for like a wellness exam, right? There are like, very few uh, uh indicators that or measurements or you know um yeah measurements that that the doctor like you know ask us to do or to have like for example like a blood pressure temperature and probably oxygen levels when we are doing a soil health assessment like assessing assessing the the wellness of a soil ecosystem also we start with like very few um parameters or indicators to see like what is the quality? What is the wellness? Like you know, what is the status of this soil? The health status of this soil. So we are looking into organic matter. We're looking into uh, compaction. We're looking into the pH, and we're looking into the microbial activity or like the diversity of the macrofauna, the ones that you know, the engineers that are doing or being responsible of the composition. So for me, it's looking into the well-being and quality of our soil ecosystem.
0: Mm. That's, That you know, sounds very, very comprehensive. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like in terms of a lot of our agriculture production operations around this part of the state or in Iowa, Minnesota, Illinois, uh, where we have a lot of row crop agriculture, we have lots of large equipment that goes over them. I'm just kind of curious, like, is Dr. Cordova, is, is your diagnosis of our soil health? Is it okay or we have a lot of work to do
1: yeah that that's you know something that we need to uh first know like in 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 which level are we at right there are like some um i will not generalize you know estates but like going like farmer to farmer like there are like some farmers that have been you know in using conservation practices for more than 20 years 30, 40 years, you know, they have maintained very diverse crop rotations that have helped them to like build up organic matter. But then there are like others that have been, you know, aggressively managing their fields and only like, you know, getting like the best out of them, but without like replenishing what they're, you know, what is living out in their um, uh, harvested um, crops. And also not using appropriate um, management practices that, you know, is completely eroding the soil, completely leaving the soil, like, for example, leaving the soil uncovered during the off, uh, off-growing season. And leaving that, you know, a bare ground after the, the you know, the crop is harvested makes the soil vulnerable to, yep. uh, like, rain, to wind, to radiation, that's something that we don't talk about much, that the radiation effects, the negative effects of radiation in soils when the soil is uncovered. So now I'm happy that you know the 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 government is really promoting the adoption of regenerative act practices, or like, you know, also known as climate smart agricultural practices that you know gives, you know, or or, or provides these cost-share programs that farmers can, you know, get access to it, get some, you know, incentive to adopt new practices and test, you know, which of these practices are, are the best for their, like, you know, their fields. So, mm-hmm. of course, you know, we, we know that cover crops around the States, there are like an, an adoption of 59% of the cropland in the U.S. have cover crops now, only 4% in Nebraska. You know that's according to a uh, USDA uh, NASS, like you know the the yeah. statistical uh, report um, that was released in 2022. So four percent is fairly low, right? But sure. you know it's cover crops. But when we're talking about other um, a regenerative act practice that you know promotes, a, I mean reduces soil erosion, we have a widely adoption of no-till here in Nebraska as well as in Kansas. So you know I'm I'm happy to hear you know those those things and and be proud of saying that Nebraska is mainly not till you know, all the croplands and that also uh is one of the leading states with the crop livestock integration. So that's not something not new here in Nebraska whereas you know it's one of the practices that we are promoting with you know how to build um healthy soils but you know including like you know bringing back the animals to the fields you know and and have you know the the recycling of nutrients and so on so the, that's the current status that you know I can I can share with you like in Nebraska and like Kansas and um the cases you know case by case scenario from from different um uh, producers different practitioners
0: Excellent. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about cover crops here in, in just a minute, but I kind of go back to something you were talking about earlier with regard to uh, management practices. In particular, you said something about uh, crop rotation. So, yes, my understanding, you know, m- most farmers around here seem to have a corn and soy rotation or um, are, are there is, is there a, a better I don't, know, I don't know if the word better is right, but. What would you consider to be more of an ideal rotation for crops in this part of the country for soil health?
1: Right. So, so you know, sometimes it's, it's tricky to, like, switch gears uh, from, you know, a, a typical corn soybean rotation to, like, I don't know, like an extended one with, like, three three rotations. But, like, the adoption of cover crops will be, you know, ideal for many, many uh, parts of the, like, many Many farms like located on the eastern part like as you're going towards the western part like central and western part then we're dealing with some issues of like water um uh, yeah la- lack of water right so having a cover crop sometimes might like trigger the 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 main crops uh, production or like you know in the east in the western part is totally uh, impossible to have cover crops. But there are like other practices that could be adopted, right? So we know, and you highlighted like cover crops, no teal, but there are other, pra- those are like nature-based solutions or not nature-based uh, practices that help us to build healthy soils. But there are like also technological uh, solutions, technological, you know, um, yeah, based solutions that we could adopt in those parts of the states. Like, for example, we could, um, improve or nutrient management you know have the precision precision nutrient management with the use of you know UAVs with like a the use of um these yield maps so we could like target points where we are like you know over or underperforming and the underperforming probably those areas could be out of production you know something like that or even improve irrigation that could help us you know also, to manage more appropriately the other resources and work with AI, right, like artificial intelligence for, like you know, with farm data, uh, decision support tools, and so on. So, those those are you know the the other solutions that we could have for like places that you know cover crops don't fit that well, right? And then looking into uh, now the extension of the rotations, we are seeing that. The maturity groups that commonly are used here in Nebraska in different parts of the state, people need to like change their maturity groups that they have been using in the last 10, 10, like the last decade or so. So in the last decade, perhaps they were like growing like a short season soybean. Now they're going into like more like a um a longer season uh soybean. Like you know, I was uh just talking with one farmer that usually he used like a 2.4 maturity group soybean now is using a four like he's like now testing and he's able even to use a 3.4 maturity group even like a four maturity group that is you know it has a longer growing season and why is that that now the growing season is increasing and he is you know Considering that, are we like in Nebraska, are we going to have like, you know, probably a three-way rotation the same way that Kansas has? So perhaps in the not uh, too far, no, not too far in in, in the future, we are going to look into those, you know, three-way rotations that that we will be able to adopt. I know that it's not very common uh, to have corn, soybean, and winter wheat in 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 I in in U N L uh, experimental fields work perfectly, and we are even able to have summer cover crops. Not common, but you know it's possible. And the Rogers Memorial Farm has these experiment going on already for s- close to twenty years. And those systems, like having these three way rotation plus summer cover crops, and also sometimes winter cover crops like after corn is harvested Mm -hmm. they have seen like that is building like resilience resilience uh resilient fields so you know that in bad years the bad years are actually not impacting that bad those fields so something to consider and and of course not common but yeah we have proven that you know it's it's possible to have a three-way rotation and include like summer cover crops
0: Sure. Well, and one thing that's interesting about that is, depending on the age of the farmer and what part of the state they're in, they may not be that far removed from when they actually grew winter wheat. Winter wheat used to be fairly common in this area. So did grain sorghum, for that matter. So you had to go east into Cass County to find rain-fed corn and soy. If you went west, you found you know irrigated corn and soy. Right here in Lancaster County and Gage County, this used to be mostly Winter wheat and grain sorghum territory up until about the late nineteen nineties. Uh, so I'm curious if like some of them, you know, would be a little bit more minimal. Say, oh yeah, I used to grow wheat. We could put it in, uh, take it out, and put a soybean crop in, and then you know the next year you have a corn crop. So is that that's kind of the rotation you're you're speaking of. Yes,
1: yes. So so now 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 that I remember, you know why why winter wheat, you know, is is somewhat not that popular and. And looking into the historical yield data from this field, uh, there there are like you know not, not good years. Like, for example, this year was not really good for winter wheat.
0: Well, it didn't rain.
1: <laughs> it didn't rain, exactly. So drought years really like, you know, impact negatively uh winter wheat, but the good prices of corn and soybean are the ones that pay off for those, you know, for the for, the, for, for these losses that we have during the winter years. So that is something that probably um, might have, you know, scare away people on on, on, on using uh, a winter wheat in their rotations. On the other hand, you mentioned sorghum. Sorghum is a really good crop, you know, is a resilient crop and also a, a low input crop in the way that, uh, the demand for nutrients for like fertilizers is super low compared to corn mm. and but the the sad part is that there are not many uh elevators that take soybean that that, that takes sorghum milo so you know they, they they needs to come from other parts of the I, I don't remember how many elevators do take sorghum here in Nebraska, but they are like not in every town nor like you know, in areas where where there is a good production of of milo or sorghum, so yeah, that and- is you know tricky. that, you know, but it's a really good like resilient like drought resilient crop. That you know, it's it's even like the the DOE uh, it's you know, is after you know promoting switchgrass for bioenergy production, they are like promoting also uh sorghum as the next crop. That you know, it, it is mm-hmm. less risky as it is an annual crop, and if people didn't like the first year, they can just you know, move on, whereas when you are committing to grow, a perennial crop might be like, you know, a commitment of three to five years to like, you know, produce, and you will not see good yields until the third year of after the establishment of the perennial. So that's, you know, something that I can add there.
0: It'd be interesting to go so I could do a survey of uh, elevators kind of – um say from Ceresco down to Beatrice to see kind of when it was that they s- generally stopped taking sorghum. Uh, because my guess is if you were with an elevator here in 1983, they all would have taken sorghum because a lot of people were growing it back then. Um, you actually didn't have that much corn, at least right in this immediate area at that point. Um, but just but you're you're talking about, sorghum being more drought tolerant. If you look at the crop ratings, condition ratings on sorghum, in the state this year and i think it's mostly grown probably down toward the kansas border uh in areas that were definitely not in great shape this year with the drought their condition ratings were a lot better than, than corn uh and were probably growing in, in similar areas the other thing too that I, I i suspect that the evapotranspiration signature on sorghum is quite a bit different than it is on corn i don't think it pumps nearly as much et into the lower atmosphere as corn does which would make you know our hot days here a little bit less oppressive. Like that heat wave we had in August, the dew points were up into the low 80s Fahrenheit or even mid 80s Fahrenheit in some cases in eastern Nebraska during that, you don't attain that naturally. The only way you're getting that is all that corn. There' was just enough soil moisture for the corn to tap into to produce a lot of extra ET, you know, to make us all very miserable. If that was mostly if that was a mix of grain sorghum and corn and soybean, maybe that's a little bit less and that maybe it would reduce the heat risk a little bit. Um, you know, again, I'm not trying to pick on people who are growing corn. It's just the, the, the crops, the ET signatures on those crops are are somewhat different. Um, and I, I just thought of that when you were talking about sorghum. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious, like in terms of um, you're going out and doing field work with with the students and you dig a, a hole under a native sp- you know, under, under grass, that has been there for, you know, hundreds of years. That soil compared to a field that probably was tilled fairly regularly up until maybe 10, 15 years ago. You know, how different does that soil profile look?
1: Wow, like very different. Very, very, very different, right? Like a native soil that has not been disturbed, like, you know, is is completely um, a virgin soil, right? So, it has like all the structure and it has accumulated so much organic matter that you could see that, you know, how deep is their, a horizon compared to a soil from a cropland that, you know, it has shrunk so much that, you know, the, the a horizon might measure like, I don't know, 10 to 15 centimeters. Where are the, whereas the in a native um soil, it will be more than that, right? Like it will be 60, I mean, 50 centimeters or something. And on the other hand, you will see that the roots are like there, right? The, the structure that are holding together the soil. So it will be really hard to break apart that um, soil from these native um grassland, for example, compared to one from a cropland that has been heavily tilled, and then you know, all the aggregates have been, you know, broke apart. And there is not much structure, right, to hold together these soil. So so, and, and you can see that uh, even like the colors change, right? The, the, it will be like a light brown, to, whereas in the other one will be a dark uh, uh, black that tells you that how much organic matter is present, right? Like how rich it is in organic matter. So that is, you know, in terms of colors, in terms of structure, how different those those two soils are.
0: And that organic matter is essential to having a healthy corn or soybean crop, Right
1: exactly yes 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 the uh, like the highest the organic matter content the highest the fertility of a soil like any soil not only like cropland, it could be rangeland could be forest, it could be um grassland so right now we are when we are doing a soil health assessment we are looking into these different ecosystems, including urban areas because nowadays the the urban farming is increasing dramatically. So since the pandemic now, like, people realize that they can grow some tomatoes in their backyard, right? So Mm -hmm. now that we are, like, studying the soil health uh, of of the soils, we're looking into also doing those assessments in urban areas because, you know, perhaps there are, like, good intentions in growing tomatoes or lettuce or herbs in their backyard, but they don't know, like, what type of soil they're dealing with in their backyard, so they are like, you know, the, the more concentrated uh cities or like the, the older cities have, you know, some some lead uh mm-hmm. pollution or some like construction debris. So if you don't know the history of your backyard, so you better like take a look and dig up and see w- what you have and take a sample and submit it to a lab to see if it's, you know, a a good soil where you could grow tomatoes and lettuce because you're going to eat them straight from from like right after you harvest them so it's good to know what is the soil health status of your backyard soil
0: that's sounds like very good advice and that just so this morning i was talking to um uh, an art professor actually that's working with weather ready farms and she was talking about oh they just tore down pershing and She said, oh, how about we turn that into like a mini urban farm? And my first response is like, well, the soil there is probably very contaminated right now is because when that building was construction constructed, there were probably certain practices that were not thought of back in the forties or fifties, whenever that was built. Uh, So my guess is there's probably some lead and some other things in the soil that we probably would want to be consuming food from that for a while. And, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of think of soil. As, I don't know, maybe this isn't a good analogy, but I think of soil for agriculture is like the foundation for your house. Uh, if it's not good, doesn't matter what else you do with the house. Like you're not going to be able to, it's not going to be a great house unless you have a good foundation. So at, at a minimum, it seems like taking care of your soils is like one of the utmost things you have to do as a as a producer. Um. So when you, you've got to work with farmers, you um, I'm, I'm glad that we're, you know, very um, far ahead on no-till. Um, do you have other recommendations for them in terms of like what they can do to really optimize their soil health? I know you kind of talked a little bit about some of that already, but uh, what are like, it's like two or one or two things you would tell uh, a farmer that they could implement on their operation in the next five years to make their soil health more sustainable?
1: So first of all, you know, as as like you know, as an economist will also will say like, okay, let's let's take a look, what do you have, right? Like let's do an assessment, let's do an assessment to know like in where you are at, right? Like in which level, in which soil health level you are, like compared to, for example, to a fence line that was you know a soil that has been, uh, undisturbed for like several decades, or probably if you have a native side next to your field or you know um, a tree line that also has you know can serve as a control um, that you could compare So my cropland with the, with the, with a the tree line or with a fence line and see like okay how much have I you know probably built organic matter or how much have I like you know disturbed the soil like what is the structure So have a sense of like wh- what is the level the soil health, uh, status of 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 your field in order to like after that right also do an assessment what are the problems that i'm dealing with is it ponding is it uh a invasive species is it uh for example compaction so like looking into like that assessment not only you know taking the soil samples submitted to the lab for analysis but also doing an in situ analysis of looking, you know, an observational analysis of like, do I have crusting? Do I have compaction? Where do I have compaction? What what, what are my yields? You know. So now that we have so many sensors in our uh, combines, in our you know machinery, we could get that information to inform us about like, okay, these are the areas that are underperforming in my you know three hundred acres or something. So what are the issues there? Is it like nutritional? Is it like physical problems like compaction or pounding or you name it? So with that information, the more information that they gather, like through lab analysis and through an in-situ observational or like qualitative uh, assessment that, you know, really lead them into, okay, so my issue is, for example, compaction. Okay. So what am I doing? How many times I'm like, you know, coming in into the field, like with my, with my machinery? So do I like how, what is the frequency of tilling? Um, is it like, because I have just a a, a monocrop, like corn, continuous corn? That's, you know, make, make them think about like, what, what, what is causing these issues? Because, you know, compaction doesn't come like overnight, doesn't appear overnight. It's something that You know, is the result of like lots of um traffic and trampling on the fields and so on. So those things are you know need to consider and 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 not do the comparison like my you know I'm doing this, but my my neighbor is doing that because soils are so diverse that what you know your neighbor is doing probably doesn't apply to your field. Oh,
0: absolutely, sure. So
1: that's something that you know we need to acknowledge, but also we need to open up, right? Like, and and share this information, like, you know, contact us if they have issues, you know, and we could help them to do those assessments and uh, happy to bring, you know, different uh, equipment to measure compaction and so on. So I'm he- we are here for them, right? Like, you know, that's the best part and the beauty of working at the university that we are the ones that have the unbiased opinion and we are not selling any product. So we are here for the community to help them, to solve their issues, to make them, you know, analyze what is the situation and what is the best practice that they could adopt in their system. So looking into the system, right? Like before we were looking into the fertility of the soil because we really wanted to like increase yield. But today that's not the case. That doesn't apply anymore. The soil is a very complex system That definitely needs to like we need to look into the physical, chemical and biological properties, because Mm -hmm. all of those three interact to each other and really help to build these healthy soils, like healthy plants, healthy animals and healthy communities.
0: Sure. Well, it seems to be another benefit of having very healthy soils. So um, healthier soils would tend to infiltrate more water or at least infiltrate water a little bit better. Was that is that accurate?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that's true, right? So a healthy soil will be the one that has, you know, a high organic matter, higher organic matter will lead into like more porosity, more uh, water retention too, right? And, and other aspects into like, for example, accumulation of carbon in place. So definitely there it, it goes hand in hand, right? And, sure. and, and, you know, we definitely need like really good soils that will allow us to, filter and improve these 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 water that is coming from from the rainfall and so on.
0: Sure. Well just from a simple climate standpoint, if we are expecting to have more extreme events, more volatility, if we get more three, three and a half, four inch rains and then we go two, three weeks without getting rain, if your soil can hold more of that three or four inch rain, you're a lot more likely to be able to maintain more of that rain in the profile. That way your crop has a lot more water for say I, I call it a longer stay of execution. If you can hold more water, your crop will be able to maintain for four or five more days than if you don't have that health, don't have that ability to infiltrate that water. Um, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah hmm Yes. Yeah. It will it will act as an sponge, right? Like you will retain that water for like, you know, there will be like kind of a savings account to like not only water, but also nutrients.
0: Yep. No, I, I think I, I forgot who I told this to earlier in the like a couple of weeks ago, but I, I referred to you know, having soil moisture, deep soil moisture as having a savings account or a reserve of money, like for people. Um, you know, if your drought's kind of like, you know, you get laid off or you can't work full time for a period of time, if you have a good reserve of money, you can kind of withstand that for a little while. Uh, you can just, it's like for the crops, going to withstand not having the top soil moisture for a little while. If you don't have a reserve of moisture and you don't have anything in the top part of the profile, your crop's going to be in very, uh, deep trouble uh, soon. So it's going to need rain very frequently. I think the issue we've had this year in a lot of the state is we had very little deep moisture or even mid-level moisture going into the year. In some parts of state, you know, we've had enough, we had enough moisture in July and early August to keep the top part of the profile going. And I think that's why you saw corn and soybeans grow what they did, but it seemed obvious to me by late August that, you know, when that top part of the, you know, the moisture is depleted. It had nothing below it It had no reserve to work with. And the result is you had a crop that accelerated to maturity. I mean, the heat was also an aspect of that, but, you know, just, again, I think the more healthier our soils are, keep that water in there. That means that you can withstand those, that heat a little bit better. Uh, So I think this is all ties in. And regarding the assessments, one of the goals of Weather Ready Farms is to really have more robust self-assessments and I think one of the most important aspects of that assessment is just r- really getting a very good idea of how healthy your soils are, because I think those are. It seems to me that there are more tangible, constructive things that we can do to improve our soil health. Even if it's not going to happen immediately, there are steps that we can take to to do that, and those are things I think we have control we have control over, uh, or at least that's my uh, uh, that's my view. Maybe that's not an accurate view, but that's sort of my view.
1: Yeah no no that that is well said uh, Eric and 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 also at the end you you highlighted one important point that we didn't um uh, included or didn't emphasize uh too much <laughs> earlier but it is time right the adoption of of a new practice or a new i don't know like a cover crop or something is not going to impact immediately you know it's not going to boost soil fertility or the soil health of a system like you know overnight it takes yep. you know it takes minimum three years three three to five years to like actually for us to to see the changes right like particularly in organic matter organic matter is something that doesn't build overnight and 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 there are like some physical or chemical properties also that don't change you know immediately like after like one year of adoption so I, you know, I want to encourage uh, practitioners, farmers, producers that, you know, when they're adopting a a new practice, just be patient. This is going to pay off, you know, after three to five years. But, you know, uh, rest assured that, you know, it's it's going into a positive, um, you're going to see a positive effect, but definitely it will take some time uh, until you see that.
0: And it seems, you know, I know we talked about no-till a little bit. So I'm just kind of curious. Do you think the University of Nebraska Extension System was one of the reasons why no-till was very widely adopted in the state? Why we were kind of you know a a good trendsetter for the rest of the country and a good example for the rest of the country in terms of uh, soil health in that regard?
1: Yes, I, I'm. You know, as I am just one year old here, um, I don't know much about the history, but I think that I think that it goes beyond UNL. Uh, that you know, people adopted these these other practice, and I think that goes back to the dust ball and you know all these, um, uh, uh, dust uh, storms. So Kansas and, and Nebraska were heated pretty badly in the nineteen thirties or so. So I think that people like understood that you know the the like by abusing the soils with like you know with tilling will really uh, increase soil erosion. So I think that that's another thing that people understood, but, you know, due to the, you know, the bad experiences of the dust bowl and uh, all these dusty mm-hmm. storms. So I think that that's another thing. And mm-hmm. and yeah, I think that I will need to dig a, a little bit more about like this, the history and, and how the adoption of no-till has increased over the years.
0: Yeah, this it's pretty widely. It's um, I for, I forget the exact percentage, but it's a very high percentage of farms that uh, or farmers that use it, right?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's widely adopted uh, across Nebraska and Kansas. Yeah. So that's something that doesn't occur in the states that have the most fertile soils. That are like you know Iowa and Illinois. Those they have molly soils, which are like known as the best soils in the world due mm. to their like high fertility. So that is something that you know um. Uh, it's surprising that they are not taking good care of their soils right they have like they are like farming on top of mines
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah so yeah but yeah there is you know something to to look into is that iOS State has um, designed these erosion the daily erosion uh, app or map where you could like know like in in the part where your farm is located what is the percentage of erosion or what is the erosion rate at that particular site and um yeah i think that now that app has expanded and and we could look into like also nebraska what is the erosion rate in nebraska fields
0: oh sure yeah and i was thinking i i saw a paper i don't know probably 4 or 5 years ago that looked at um the amount of top soil that was lost during the 1930s. And with the exception of like the very, very far southeastern part of the state, I mean, it was a pretty substantial amount of top soil that was lost. And you lost soil in states east of here too. The 1930s were a very kind of harsh time on this continent. I mean, you had very bad droughts uh, pretty much everywhere in this continent at some point, in 1930s, but it was particularly bad here. And then yeah, you go west here, you had a lot of land that was really blowing almost continuously for a while. So maybe only being some of these farmers are only a couple of generations removed from the dust bowl was that might have been some you're right that might have been more of an incentive for them to actually adopt no till um so i mean anyway, we're kind of starting to uh, wrap up here but uh thank you very much for your time and i just want to give you a chance to uh do you have any social media accounts you want to promote or any blogs or anything else that you that you want to talk about
1: Yes, yeah, thank you, Eric. So yeah, definitely the the website that I would like to promote is the one for the soul health program that I'm li- co-leading with my colleague, uh, Katia Kollerko, who is the extension educator, and it is located in the, uh, www.cropwatch.unl.edu/slash soul health program. So they can like find us there, and also they could, you know. Um, get to know more about our events. We are a very active uh, group. Then we promote different uh, conferences, so health conferences, field days, and training. So I hope that people can join us in one of these events, which are free and are very um, uh, fun uh, to attend and and place in, in these events, you know, in these events. Our aim is to strengthen it or like learning communities so we not, not only have experts coming to these events, but also we have some farmer's panels where they can share their experiences, you know, the pros and cons of adopting certain practices, and also how was their learning curve. <laughs> so yeah, it would be great to have them, um, to have, you know, the listeners joining um, these events.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Dr. Cordova, and you have a good rest of your day.
1: Thank you very much, Eric.